Well, good morning to you. It's a lovely day in the neighborhood. I knew I had to give up youth ministry when the teenagers started calling me Mr. Rogers. I did give up my button-up sweater, but uh, I have stuck with the uh, slipovers. We're uh, in the seventh week of our rooted experience. This is my sixth uh, go-around with it. I have been an attender, and then I have been a, a leader. And one of the things that I really enjoy are the stories. And in a certain, to a certain measure, every story that we tell about redemption is epical. If you think what it takes to get a lost sinner back to God, it surely is epical. Thursday morning at our men's Bible study, one of the not younger men, seasoned, shared his story. And it was brief, but it was really touching. He told us how that he was raised in a Christian home, went to Sunday school and church uh, as a child and as a young man, uh, and had a faith in Christ, but it wasn't very deep. It was a rather shallow. He went into the army, and when he returned from the army, he read a publication that came from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And it touched his heart in a very deep way. And he knelt and surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other end of the spectrum, Thursday night in our rooted group, one of the young men spoke. His story was different than the other story. When he was just a child, uh, his father abandoned the family and the mother was a single mom. And uh, he grew up in a home that was filled with violence and drug addiction. And as he spoke and told his story, I, my eyes started to, to flood with tears. Just as in the morning when my other friend told his story and his eyes welled up with tears. Stories were different, but the God was the same. And both men have wonderful stories of the epic of redemption. In the New Testament, I suppose there's one story that seems to stand out above other stories, and it's the epical story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And if you remember, Saul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He had a visceral hatred for Jewish people that had converted to Christianity. And so he secured permission from the high priest and the religious leadership to persecute, to imprison, and put to death Christ's followers. And you'll read his story in the book of Acts. 
how he has this incredible encounter with the Son of God. And he hears Jesus speak from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The redemption story is so remarkable. In time, his name will be changed and he will become Paul. And Paul, the one who once persecuted the church, who truly was a terrorist, is transformed by the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes perhaps the world's greatest missionary. And we have a number of his books that we derive our life and our faith from. In our journey through the book of Joshua, and if you have your Bibles, if not, you might have uh, your uh, electronic device, uh, your Bible app. We want to spend our time this morning in the ninth chapter of the book of Joshua. And I want us to look at the amazing story of an epical redemption. And I would put this title on it, Mercy Seekers, People Who Were Seeking Mercy. Just a little background. As Israel was coming through uh, uh, the desert, 40 years of wandering, in the latter years, uh, they became fierce warriors, and they conquered a number of tribal nations on the east side of the Jordan River. And at God's appointed time, the waters parted, as you remember, uh, the priests leading the way, the Israelites cross into uh, Palestine, into Israel. And they have an incredible victory at Jericho. It's all, you know, just from a human perspective, it's almost an unbelievable story. But the mighty hand of God is with them. And the walls fall, and the folks that live in Jericho are utterly destroyed. We looked at Achan's sin and how through his dishonesty and his violation of the covenant of God, uh, the nation lost the next battle. They, they sent an expeditionary force to a little town called Ai, and they got whipped. <laughs> they came back discouraged. And God reminds them that there's sin in the camp. And so God deals in wrath and judgment with Achan and his family and all that he has. It's sobering. It's very sobering. It reminds me of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. When God has done this new wonderful thing, his powers come upon his people. The Spirit of God is moving in the land, and they choose deception. And in their deception, they lie to the Holy Spirit, and they lose their lives. These folks the folks at Gibeon that we'll learn about this morning have heard about the victory of Israel in the wilderness. They've heard about the conquest of Jericho, this great walled city that seemed impenetrable. 
they saw how God cleansed the nation, so to speak, and they had this overwhelming victory at Ai. There's great fear in the land. This army is sweeping across the nation. And so most of the tribes ally themselves together. And they're going to declare war on Israel. They're going to stand against them. But the Gibeonites have heard. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing, hearing of the Word of God. They heard about Israel's deliverance from Egypt. They heard about the mighty hand upon, of God upon the people in the wilderness. They observed the might and the power of the Lord as these people came then into the land of promise. And so the Bible says that they kind of connived and used deception to find and uh, to form an alliance with the Israelites. And so this is what they do. Although their city was just a short distance from the encampment at Gilgal, they put on old clothes, worn clothes. Their sandals were worn. They had uh, bags of uh, skins of water and of wine. They were cracked and broken. And they said to the elders of Israel, we have come from a, a distant place. When we started out, our clothes were new, our shoes were new, our, our, our skins, water skins, water bags. They were brand new, but look at them, they're worn. They're worn. And so it says that the people of Israel, the elders and Joshua, they didn't consult the Lord. And so they made an agreement, a pact with the Gibeonites. Three days later, the deception was discovered. And so we pick up the story from there. And if you'll look with me, I think some of this will be on the screen. If not, let me read for you. Jesus called, uh, Joshua called together the Gibeonites and said, why did you lie to us? Why did you say that you live in a distant land when you live right here among us? May you be cursed from now on. You will always be servants who cut wood and carry water for the house of my God. They replied, we did it because we, your servants, were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you this entire land and to destroy all the people living in it. We feared greatly for our lives because that is why we have done this. Now we are at your mercy. Do to us whatever you think is right. So Joshua did not allow the people of Israel to kill them. But that day he made the Gibeonites, the woodcutters and the water carriers for the community of Israel and for the altar of the Lord. Wherever the Lord would choose to build it, and that is what they are to this day. Let me point out four things this morning. One, I would like you to consider with me uh, the peril they faced. They were faced with the 
severity of the wrath of God. In our time, we don't often hear sermons that speak about the wrath of God and about the judgment that is to come. It's kind of hush-hush, it's inferred, but we don't speak too often boldly about it. And I think we do that to our own sorrow, to our own loss. It is, as the scriptures say, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is, as the scriptures say, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. We are all under a death uh, sentence. I was in Vaughn's yesterday, and... uh, uh, the, the gal that was uh, putting our, our, our uh, groceries in bags, we were conversing, and, of course, the conversation went to this uh, uh, coronavirus. And uh, she, she felt that people were overact- overreacting because they're selling out all the bottled water and all the toilet tissue and all of that stuff. And uh, she said to me, I thought it was uh, really, uh, I didn't expect to hear this. She says, we're all going to die anyway. (laughs) And isn't that the truth? We're all going to die anyway. So uh, we have an appointment with death. The wages of sin is death. And the Bible speaks of at least two places of judgment. One is the great white throne judgment. And we read that over at the end of the book of Revelation. And it's where all Christ rejectors are judged. And they're banished forever and ever from the presence of the Lord. And they spend an eternity with Satan and his ilk. It's not a happy thought. But there's also another judgment in Scripture. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, where we who are Christ followers we'll have to give an account. Our salvation's not at risk. However, how we have followed Christ is considered. And we are judged on the basis of our fidelity and our faithfulness to Christ. And so judgment is not a trifling. I was 24 years of age and full of myself, as many 24-year-olds are. And I had an attitude. I had a little pickup truck that I was trying to remodel, and it wasn't working out very well because I didn't have any money and I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) And so I was driving it one day, and I got a fix-it ticket. Now, I felt I was being persecuted and that I should make my case to the judge that I'm going to suffer great loss uh, with the repairs I have to make to this truck uh, and... uh, So I decided to appeal to the judge. Somehow my cockiness and my belligerent attitude seemed to leak out. And the judge says to me, young man, one more word from you, and uh, I'll hold you in contempt of court. Well, I I put a cork in it right right away. (laughs) This This is not a good thing. It was scary. It was scary. It caused me to think, it causes me to think about what would it be like to stand before Jesus, even as a believer. 
There's some mighty pictures in the Bible of people who encounter the living God. Godly people. And I think outstanding among them is John on the Isle of Patmos. And he has this vision of the ascended Christ, the enthroned Christ. And it's so powerful. He doesn't have any questions for Jesus. He just does FaceTime. It's a face plant. He's in the presence of holiness. He's in the presence of Almighty God. And he's taken aback. And he prostrates himself before Jesus. I want to order my life as a Christ follower in such a way as when I stand before him, I can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to follow him with my whole heart. I know that's where the best life is found. I don't know what it would be like to be uncovered, to be exposed by God, and all of my sins exposed without the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be doom. And that's what, that is what awaits a world that rejects Jesus Christ. So it is sobering. It is a peril that they face. It's a peril that we all face or have faced. And that is the severity of the wrath of God. The second thing I see in this text that I think that's important for us is the prudence they exhibit. You know, prudence is an old world, old word, but it really talks about wisdom. They were wise. In fact, these people were shrewd. So what they did, they opted for mercy and not justice. You see, what justice demands is that our sins be atoned for. And the Scripture declares that the soul that sinneth, our sins shall surely die. It it says that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if we got justice, then damnation is the only answer for us. It's an eternity without God. But if on the other hand, we seek for mercy, I hear in my inner ear as I read the scriptures of the blind men who said, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. They cried out, and those around them tried to shut them up. But they cried all the louder, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus gave them their sight. I think of the religious guy, the Pharisee, the do-gooder, the guy that was really proud of his self-righteousness. In the temple one day, He is praying, and he reminds God of what a good man he is, and God's really really lucky to have him on his side. And he lists, you know, all of his good deeds and how wonderful he is. But there was another man. He's called in the old versions a publican. A publican is a tax collector. They worked for Rome, and the Jews hated them. They work for the IRS, you know, in April coming up here. 
and we don't have happy thoughts about the IRS, but they're, they're necessary. The tax collector, tax collector, he was despised. And the scripture says that he wouldn't even look up. He just said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said he was the one that went home justified. I choose mercy over justice, do you? Another traffic court story. This happened uh, last summer. My friend, Bill Libby, Bill and Sheila, um, we were in their wedding, and they were in ours. Bill was my partner. We put roofs on together for a number of years. We went to Bible college together. He would preach for me, and I would preach for him. He was a rock for me in high school when I was running with the wrong people. It was Bill who would get a hold of me and say, hey, we can't do that. I love Bill. I love him. But Bill has advanced Parkinson's disease. Bill's in his early 80s now. And uh, his situation is dire. So Anita and I, we just wanted to go see Bill and Sheila. They live up in Salem, outside of Salem, Oregon. And so uh, we had been in a wed- at a wedding in San Jose, first part of August. And so early in the morning, on a Sunday morning, we drove straight through to Salem. It's quite a long journey. We got caught up in traffic. There'd been a terrible wreck. And so when I arrived in Salem, it was midnight. And, it, you know, I, I don't know that city. I was trying to obey all the laws. And I came to a stoplight, and I made a right-hand turn. It was midnight. I, I didn't even think about it. We do it here in California all the time. Three weeks later, I got a letter. The camera caught me. I made an illegal turn. I didn't make the appropriate stop. So I thought back to when I was 24. I need to spout off and let them have a piece of my mind. But how did that work? (laughs) Not well. (laughs) So I chose another route. I opted for mercy and not justice. So I wrote this wonderful little letter, humble, humble letter. It was my fault because I had not read the State of Oregon Motor Vehicle Code. And obviously I was out of line or you would not have given me the ticket. And then I wrote in the letter, I have heard that sometimes you don't charge first-time offenders. <laughs> and so I sent the letter off. I got a return letter. And it says, your fine is $250, <laughs> but we're excusing $60 of it. So it was 190 So I got a partial clemency. It's not that way with our God. It is not that way with our God, people. Do you hear me? It's not that way with our God. When we cry out to him for mercy, it is not a partial clemency, but it's a complete and full pardon. Isn't that blessed? We have a complete and full pardon 
when we cry for mercy and not justice. Fourth movement in the text that stands out to me is the the, the word I want, come word, come to me. I, I want you to see the, uh, uh, the penalty, the penalty, the penalty they averted. They were under a death sentence. There was a penalty that they were under. And rather than receiving the death penalty, the penalty was averted and they received life instead of death. Now, this is an interesting story because it parallels our story. We, who by nature are sinners and worthy of separation from God for time and eternity, we have been given life. We read in the Scriptures that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think of the the Martha story. I think it's the one I like best. It's when news has gotten back to Jesus that Lazarus died. And so uh, the message comes to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is dead. And so he delays. But then he makes the journey to Bethany And as he's nearing the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Martha comes to meet him. And she says, Lord, if only you had been here, then our brother would not have died. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Martha, do you believe this? Lord, I I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So she really dodged the question. So he said to her, Martha, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Period. What was he saying? He was saying there is life in the here and now that is eternal in nature. And when believers leave this life, they're issued into abundant life. They pass from death to life in a nanosecond. But prior to that passage, there was a passage from death to life. Jesus became a curse for us. And so the curse of sin was broken by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the curse no longer rests upon us. Now, it's an amazing thing as I look at this story that uh, in the process, I see the curse reversed. Life for death. Life for death. But there's one more thing I want us to see. And it has to do uh, with uh, this movement where not only is the curse reversed, but they are given, are awarded 
a, a high privilege. They're given privilege uh, that they didn't have before. And so what's interesting to me, what Joshua describes as a curse really becomes a blessing. You see, uh, to be a woodcutter and a water carrier for the altar of the Lord was a step up. No longer under the judgment. An incredible thing happens with this privilege. They get to serve God and his people. I think about the sanctuary, and I think what happens here on Friday nights. And I see many of you out there that show up on Saturday, Friday night, and the carpet's put down, the chairs are put up, the lights are all uh, hung, and the decorations on the stage. It takes quite a bit of time. But I've been here a few times on Friday night, and it's kind of fun. Usually we have something to eat, and there's some time to laugh and enjoy one another. After the second service today, all these carpets will come up. Those chairs will be put on dollies, and they'll be taken out to a trailer where they're stored. These lights will come down, and all all the decor will be changed. And in that sense, are we not woodcutters and water carriers for the altar of the Lord? Seekers of mercy find it. And I like the scripture that says, Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you might find mercy and grace and help in the time of need. So it's not just a one-time event. When we in our sinfulness cry out to God for salvation— but it's an ongoing passion and habit of life where we come to the throne of grace. And we're all in process, and this process is this wonderful epic of redemption. We're not what we were, and we're not yet what we're going to be. We're still in process. Two stories quickly as I conclude. Some of you know that for the last couple of years, I've been um, a professor at Community Christian College, and I teach a variety of courses online. I teach uh, biblical courses, religion courses, history courses, and English courses. Right now, I'm teaching a course on expository writing, and the students are required to submit an essay. The essay title that two of the young men chose this week, and I received these essays yesterday, were entitled, If I Could Go Back in Time, What Would I Do? The first man writes, and I'm guessing he's probably maybe mid-twenties, just from what I read in the story. Apparently, he was a star athlete in high school, did very well, and uh, during the summer— of his, uh, between his sophomore and junior year, he omitted going to the gym and working out, building his body up. And uh, as a consequence, he was injured. And uh, so 
he didn't recover in time for the senior year. So he went off to a four-year school, and he says, I made the mistake of not really paying attention to my grades, and I lost my eligibility. Meanwhile, he had a child. And he said, I, I, I didn't take care of the child the way I should have, and if I could go back in time, I would work harder, be more disciplined. I would give myself to my studies, but mostly I would give myself more to my child. That was the Eric. Nigel's story brought me to tears. Nigel said, I want to recall two events that I would like to relive if I could. He said, the first was my ninth birthday. He said, I only had one birthday party, and that was when I was nine years old. And he said, my dad blindfolded me, put me in the car. And he said, it seemed like we drove forever, and we arrived at our destination. My dad took the blindfold off and opened the door, and he said, I jumped out of the car, and there were all of my friends. We were at Chuck E. Cheese. And he said, we ate pizza, and we played, and then really had fun. He said, that was my only birthday party. But he said, the other story I'd like to relive is that apparently he was smaller in stature, and he had a big buddy, and uh, he was his protector. And his big buddy was a wonderful athlete. He was a star of the, uh, the teams that he played on. And they had an awards banquet, and he and his friend had gone to the awards banquet. And his athletic friend, his big buddy, was honored tribute was paid to him. And he said, the bank was over and we were walking together. And he said, I always felt so secure when I was with my big friend. But he said, we, we went home a different way. And he said, I, it was scary to me. He said, I, I was fearful. I was frightened. And he said, a car drove up. The window rolled down. And we were shot. He said, I was injured and I recovered from my injuries. But my friend died. And he said, if I could go back in time, I'd say to my friend, let's go home a different way. And I think we're at that place in life today. There are only two paths in life. It's the path of mercy that leads us to God and fullness of life in Him. Or it's the self-centered life that says, I can make my own way through life. I don't really need help. I'm big enough. I'm strong enough to make life happen. And so I want you to hear God speak to you this morning about what we sang about earlier, surrender. Surrender, because that's really what mercy requires, isn't it? Surrender is saying, I, I can't do this myself. And so uh, I would this morning 
that you just bow your heads with me. Let me pray this prayer over you. And if in your heart you would just say yes to it, there is an abundant life that God has for you. We don't have to come under judgment and condemnation because Jesus bore the wrath of God for us. On the other hand, we are hopeless when we are without God. And what it calls for is confessing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, abandoning yourself and saying, Here I am, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. And so, Lord Jesus, I lift my hands, praying over this congregation. I pray the Holy Spirit will come, come to us individually. Spirit of God, move amongst us. Show us the wonders of your love. Uh, The wonderful privileges that we have as the children of God to come boldly to your throne of grace, to receive timely help, to receive mercy. God, we thank you for the standing that we have with you. Here we are. Here we are at your throne. Here we are at your altar, and we lay ourselves before you. Receive our offering of ourselves as a, 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 an aromatic sacrifice, a sweet-smelling savor in your nostrils. And Lord, we are so thankful for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Amen.